Welcome to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This episode is a live session from day four of Jaipur Lit Fest 2023. And it's called The Price of Time, Interest, Capitalism, and the Curse of Easy Money. Edward Chancellor in conversation with Sanjeev Sanyal. I believe it's 12 o'clock. Uh, I've always wanted to say good noon to everybody. So I, this is my opportunity. And it's good to see that uh, on a cold uh, winter morning, there are actually people in Jaipur who want to discuss monetary policy. Uh, I wouldn't have imagined it, but it looks like it's a popular topic. And I have with me here Ed, who is uh, a historian of the, of the price of time, or the price of money, whichever we prefer it, to think about interest rates. And he has a take on um, interest rates, uh, um, which in some quarters would be considered heretical. Um, so let me first attempt to describe what I think is his views of interest rates, and then I'll ask him to uh, first explain the theory, then we'll get into the perhaps the history of interest rates, and then uh, maybe take up some of the topics relating to interest rates uh, and what it means for today, where monetary policy um, is going through all kinds of uh, difficulties following the COVID crisis. And not just the COVID crisis, a longer history going back at least to the financial uh, crisis of 2007. So um, let me see if I can characterize your view of interest rates. His view, what I understand, is that the world faces a serious problem of cheap money. And cheap money is bad. Uh, because it does two things. One is it creates all kinds of bubbles and distortions in the financial system, but also because um, it in some ways keeps alive zombies in the economy and therefore doesn't allow the process of creative destruction that is critical for uh, keeping the economy alive in a sense. And this is in some ways a very supply side view of interest rates, which is not very often discussed. Much of the debate on monetary policy and interest rates uh, management tends to be a very demand uh, management kind of view of the matter. So, is, is, so is that a correct characterization of your view of interest rates, or have I got it completely wrong? No, I think that's a reasonably accurate view, and we could You'll have to be a little louder over the remaining of the, uh, remaining part of the session. So, um, you have in your book. Um, uh, a, a sort of history of how this, how the price of money evolved. Can you give us a sort of quick overview of this, going back to ancient times and then maybe not to modern times, but maybe somewhere up to maybe Locke? <laughs> um, so I just give you the starting point of why I wrote the book is uh, over the course of the last decade, interest rates had fallen to zero percent. They can't hear you. So sorry. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Um, over the course of the last decade, interest rates fell to 0% uh, in, uh, in the Western world and, and negative in Europe and Japan. And I was working initially uh, for an investment firm and we were grappling with the consequences of these very low interest rates. And so I decided 
uh, to look into the subject a bit more deeply. And the first thing one discovers is that the history of interest is an extremely uh, ancient one, that the first origins of interest we find uh, in ancient Mesopotamia in the third millennium BC. So we have five millennia of interest and interest rate history. And never before had interest rates fallen to zero percent. Never before in history. And if one looks uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, one sees a certain similarities of the function of interest that you might observe in the modern world. First of all, if you look at the ancient etymology uh, for the word interest, it tends to be derived in the ancient languages for words relating to calves, to, um, to lambs, to kid goats. And from that, we can surmise uh, that even in prehistorical periods, uh, uh, farmers were lending each other their uh, grain and their livestock uh, in order to, um, to other farmers who needed it and who were then charging some increments. So there's a link between the interest rate charged and the product of uh, the loan, of the capital. Uh, we also find in ancient Mesopotamia that interest was used, uh, charged on loans given to uh, light industries and also... What sort of interest rates were they charging? So there are two standard interest rates as, uh, in, in, in ancient Mesopotamia. There's a 33% uh, charge on barley loans and there's a 25% charge, annual charge, on um, silver loans, which seems very high, but then there's some discussion as to whether uh, the loan contracts um, actually sort of fudge the period at which the loans are made. So the, although there is a sort of statutory uh, lending, uh, statutory rate of interest, there is also a, a market rate of interest underlying it. We also see in ancient Mesopotamia that interest is used as a price of risk, uh, because we see that higher rates are charged for um, loans on, on uh, commercial uh, voyages overseas, where there's a risk of the ship sinking, and we find the same in the Middle, in the middle Ages, what are called bottomry loans, uh, charged at higher rates. We see um, interest uh, charged on, uh, on houses, uh, on, on loans for houses, um, and from, and only with the existence of interest can you actually have a, a housing market. In fact, without interest or without a discount rate, as you know, Sanjeev, it's impossible to put a valuation on any asset. Um, so we talk about interest being the time value of money, and anyone uh, who's been involved in, uh, in finance or, or even studied economics uh, knows that we use a, a discount rate on future income to arise at present value. So if you look, as I say, it's extremely unlikely that a phenomenon such as interest would have appeared five millennia ago in uh, ancient Mesopotamia before the several millennia before the invention of coined money, before the uh, Mesopotamians had even uh, invented the wheel. It's that old. It's un unlikely that we would have had this phenomenon unless it had served an, an, an essential function. 
So now you move from that phase, and of course, these things become much more evolved by the Renaissance. And of course, India had a very well-developed system, financial system, interestingly based out of bank, uh, out of uh, the temples. Um, I don't know, many of you will be aware, ancient Indian temples were very famous for being full of gold. And the reason they had gold was not because, as many people think, is that the uh, uh, Indian princes were handing over all their gold to the temples. Uh, I can assure you, uh, getting money off Indian politicians, even in ancient times, was a difficult thing. Um, the reason they had that gold was they were actually financing these great voyages to uh, all around the Indian Ocean, even out to the Pacific. Um, and it was the temples who provided the uh, venture capital to these great voyages of trade and, and discovery. So, you know, so there is a very strong link between um, um, uh, religious institutions, cultural institutions. There's a, it's, there's a whole culture around uh, interest rates. And of course, uh, Christ turns up at the temple and kicks out the money lender. So there's also the response to that uh, that happens. Yeah, so let's, we'll, um, that's a good point to make because um, what one should uh, bear in mind, uh, and in a, my book is, is an attempt to redress this, is that there's been, over most of the five millennia, a strong prejudice against the concept of interest at all. Uh, you find it uh, in the Bible, uh, you find it uh, in, in, in ancient Mesopotamia, they had these, uh, there was a concerns about uh, debt compounding over time, and when debt compounds over time, and, uh, borrow, and farmers are unable to pay their debts, uh, they're liable to slip into debt uh, bondage, and then into slavery, and that happened uh, both in Mesopotamia, in uh, ancient Israel, in Greece, and in Rome. And from that, there is a, a well-founded distrust. So th this, this business of uh, having a tilt towards easy money is an ancient thing. <laughs> yes, uh, or, or the abolition of interest. And there, um, many of you are probably familiar uh, that the Greek philosopher uh, Aristotle claimed that interest was illegitimate. As he says, money was used, uh, is, was created for use in exchange, but did not grow of its own accord. And, my, uh, and those views of Aristotle uh, were adopted by the uh, Christian church and uh, became uh, were really uh, the, the view of the, of, of the Christian church in Europe um, through the Middle Ages. Um, and my, my disagreement with Aristotle is that it would be correct to say that if I were to lend you some money and to immediately demand back more, uh, that that would be an unfair exchange. However, the loans take place across a period of time. And in his denunciation of interest or usury, Aristotle is ignoring the period of time. The argument of my book and the title of my book is that time is important. In fact, uh, uh, an American historian, uh, economic historian, William Gertzman writes that the invention of interest is the most important invention in the history of finance because, his, because interest allows one to transact across time. And um, as, we, as, as you find in the writing of Seneca, 
uh, the Roman Stoic philosopher, uh, that time is man's most precious possession. So it is very important that we use time uh, efficiently and from an and economic... put a price to it. And put a price to it. So without a price on time, then, uh, and this is the argument of the second half of my book, then the uh, financial and economic system begins to collapse. So I'm going to skip a little because we'll run out of time otherwise. So let's get to the 19th and 20th centuries. You have here very elaborate systems of managing interest rates, including central banks that emerge. And uh, of course, interest rates are both uh, used as a tool, but also blamed for many things. So how would you think the evolution of uh, our views of interest rate evolved, particularly in the 20th century, uh, the variety of views between Hayek and Keynes and others, how they thought about interest rates, demand management, the evolution through to the, the late 20th century, how the Japanese tried to revive the economy, maybe some, some flavor of that. I know it's a big topic, but we, we have very limited time. So I uh, wanted to drag you into that quickly. So, I mean, the first point I'd make is just look at the, um, my book, the f first half of the book looks at the history of interest um, in uh, going into the modern period. And one thing one observes is that the great speculative bubbles in history from the famous tulip mania of the, of, in Holland in the 1630s onwards uh, coincide with periods of low interest rates. And in particular, I have a chapter on John Law, the Scottish adventurer who went to France in the early 18th century, created uh, the first private bank in France, then the first national bank, and John Law had this idea which is uh, very similar to the views of um, modern economic, uh, mo modern monetary economists. Law's idea was that France at the time was in a period of depression, that there was too much debt, prices were falling, the nobles were over indebted, and Law's idea was we'll get rid of a gold and silver money, replace it with paper money, print a lot of paper money, and bring down interest rates. He was also running this company called the Mississippi Company, um, which took over the government debt, um, assumed the government debt in exchange for payment, and law, by bringing down interest rates from 8% to 2%, inflated the price of the Mississippi Company 20-fold in a short period of time. And he said, at that time, uh, the high price of the Mississippi Company is justified by the low prevailing rate of interest. And then Law's system, uh, which initially produced the, what we would now call asset price inflation, then produced a consumer price inflation, and the price level doubled, um, and uh, Law was forced to withdraw his money, and as he withdrew his money, uh, the Mississippi Company shares collapsed, and his whole, uh, at, uh, his, the introduction of paper money and his central bank also collapsed. So more, law moved from a brief period to being the most powerful man in Europe and the richest man who had ever lived to a man who was forced to flee France with just the coat on his back, leaving his family behind. And I think this is very instructive for the modern day uh, because the central bankers look towards law, uh, have looked towards law, as the origin of the principles of modern central banking, and yet they ignored the failure 
of Law's great experiments. So over the last decade, we have conducted, in a way, uh, a protracted rerun of the Mississippi uh, Law's Mississippi experiment, or what's called his system, and uh, we're now facing a sort of juncture uh, that law reached as the system started to collapse. So now, okay, so we have rapidly come to modern times. You have the 90s, the experiment in Japan. You keep cutting interest rates, but you just can't get prices to go up. So that is one experience. And then you have the other experience uh, of Erdogan. He cuts interest rates and rather succeeds in getting prices to go up. Um, how do you reconcile them? What is, what is it that differentiates the two experiences? Um, well, in the case of Japan, it had massive domestic savings. It had this great real estate bubble, the so-called bubble economy, and uh, the huge amount of corporate debt. And at the end of that bubble economy, uh, in 1990, uh, Japan experienced a protracted period, not of sharp deflation, but of, uh, of sort of mild deflation and this ongoing property bust that lasted uh, the best part of, of, of two decades. Um, so there's the Japanese situation, high savings, huge amount of debt, uh, but, but offset by these high savings. The Turkish situation is different. Uh, Turkey uh, attracted uh, a lot of foreign borrowing. Uh, the corporations got in debt, and, and there was also a real estate bubble in Turkey, uh, but the currency collapsed because Turkey didn't have the domestic savings to hold it up, and now Turkey has um, very high inflation. And I write in the book that Erdogan uh, is always, he's always uh, bewailing the high rates of interest. He belongs to the, uh, to the tradition of, of disparaging interest. And he, he fantasizes about what he calls the interest rate lobby, which is trying to destroy Turkey. And I say that if such a thing as an interest rate lobby exists, it has always existed to argue for lower rates, and Erdogan himself is its chief apologist. So now, we are last decade. Interest rates are dramatically brought down. 2007-8 crisis pushes it down basically to zero. It comes back sort of very gingerly. And then you get hit by the COVID crisis and it totally goes down to zero. In fact, negative in many cases. And I think your contention is that, I mean, on one hand, you have all these bubbles coming up. And you know we can have a debate whether the, the FTX and Bitcoins, et cetera, were also a part of that. But the fact of the matter is you are making two cases here. One is that it is causing all this dislocation. But I, I got the sense from your book that you almost seem to suggest that this era of cheap money is keeping an entire zombie economy alive that doesn't allow a creative destruction and in fact almost undermines the basis of Western civilization. Am I exaggerating? No, not particularly. I mean, they, you might, people might say I was exaggerating, but you're fairly describing what I wrote. Um, so one way, the way I try to set it out in the book uh, particularly when we get into the era of zero negative rates, is to look at the various functions of interest. The modern view of um, central bankers, monetary policymakers, economists, is that the interest is, not, is, is really only needed to, as a lever to control 
inflation. I argue that, in fact, actually interest has a number of other uh, roles and, um, and we can break them down. First of all, as we've already mentioned, uh, interest uh, is an essential uh, input into valuation. And when you bring interest rates down to zero or negative and take the discount rate down, you are then going to create asset price bubbles. Uh, in recent years, we have had what's known as the everything bubble, a bubble that, that incorporated the entire world uh, a, a variety of assets of the US stock market. You had the, the so-called special purpose acquisition companies, uh, the venture capital businesses, the, uh, the so-called unicorns. You had the cryptocurrency bubble. You have bubbles in contemporary art. You even had bubbles recently in puppies, uh, which and now you'll be pleased to know that bubble has burst and uh, Bloomberg- Puppies. Yeah, the puppy bubble was a sort of COVID lockdown. I've, I've not seen anyone write on the puppy bubble. Now, there was a piece in Bloomberg two days ago saying the price of cockapoos is down 85%, which is sort of slightly worse than Bitcoin, but you know, in the same uh, yardstick. So we had what's called the everything bubble. And as Warren Buffett says, uh, interest is to valuation what gravity is to matter. So there's valuation. Then with regards to the so-called zombies, interest is it determines the allocation of capital it is the hurdle rate on your investment so if you have very low rates of interest you will uh, have investments that produce returns uh, either very low returns or returns in the long distant future and we have seen uh, capital trapped in these so-called zombie companies uh, companies that have no profits, and if interest were higher, uh, they would have gone out of business. And had they gone out of business, ca that capital would have been uh, transferred to more productive purposes. Um, so what we find with the zombies, zombie companies and sectors dominated by zombies, is you have low investment, low productivity, and few new entrants. And they're associated with low productivity growth. And if you get low productivity growth, you then get uh, low income growth and low GDP growth. So that is, is, is another uh, function of interest. Interest is also the price of, of borrowing or the price of leverage. And we see in the era of low interest a huge amount of leverage, of financial engineering, particularly in the United States, private equity boom, companies um, buying back shares. The American companies have spent over the last uh, decade trillions of dollars borrowing to buy back their shares and to acquire shares in other companies. And uh, the amount of money used for financial engineering far exceeds the amount of money that is used for investment in the real economy. So uh, when the interest rate is artificially low, you then actually find uh, sort of uh, the, you find that real investment or the real economy is squeezed and distorted. Um, and when interest, as I mentioned, interest is the price of risk. And when interest is very low, people are forced and obliged uh, in order to maintain their, their investment income to take greater risk. So you get the cumulative effect of that is with bubbles, uh, with high levels of debt, and with risk taking and, and decline in underwriting standards is to push the system towards a 
another financial crisis, to build up financial instability. And that was really the uh, thrust of the late last section of the book. Uh, people, some people have misread my book to say, Chancellor wants interest rates to be higher. But in fact, had they read it more closely, they would have said, Chancellor deplores the low rate of interest, but recognizes that if you raise interest rates from these currently low levels, the house of cards will come down. And as you know, we had the COVID bubble, and with the COVID bubble, as you mentioned, interest rates were once more in the West taken down to zero, and we got the last efflorescence of the everything bubble, and then the inflation, the inflation that John Law uh, witnessed in 1720 came into the system, and finally the central bankers uh, woke up to their error and realized uh, that they needed to pull the interest rate lever in order to control inflation. But in pulling that lever, they then immediately brought down the world's stock markets by, on average, 20% last year, and the world's bond markets by 20% last year too, and then started to collapse the so-called everything bubble. And so we're now at this juncture where we have to consider where we go from here. So um, some of the audience will find some of this conversation quite interesting because um, <clears throat> India took a very different approach to economic management uh, during the COVID uh, shock, as you may be aware. Certainly the audience will be aware. Um, we did not, uh, we did do some monetary easing and fiscal easing, of course, like everybody else, but we took, did it in a more uh, safety net sort of way by creating liquidity and guarantees and so on. We didn't slam interest rates down to zero like, you know, many Nobel laureates like Stiglitz were advising us to do. Uh, instead, we, we were quite restrained in it, faced a lot of criticism personally on advocating that line of, uh, uh, that approach. And interestingly, after a brief moratorium, actually allowing the insolvency and bankruptcy process to actually come back and begin working. In fact, through this crisis, we, one of our largest airlines, Jet Airways, actually shut down. And, you know, there was, and so on. So we continued allowing that creative destruction process to um, play itself out. As I said, there was a period of moratorium uh, during the peak lockdown. But other than that, we have actually taken a much very different approach. Would you agree that that was a more sensible approach? I, I would hope so. <laughs> uh, is it your idea? How could I disagree with you? Um, no, I mean, so, um, so think of lockdown. I mean, I was living in, in uh, I live in England, and uh, when the lockdown came, uh, and you saw you know, the government, uh, both in Britain, Europe, uh, United States, started borrowing uh, vast sums of money, to pay people to stay at home and to pay businesses uh, to pay their workers. And for my first point, and the British uh, fiscal deficit, I think, rose to 15% of GDP, sort of wartime level, highest level of deficit in outside of war. And my first thought was that the extravagance of lockdowns would never have been uh, accepted had there been a cost on interest. Uh, in Britain, for instance, the Bank of England lent the government, indirectly by buying bonds in the market, 850 billion pounds. 
and charge the government 10 basis points. That's 0.1% on that loan. Now, given at the time we had this uh, you know, woefully extravagant Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, in charge, uh, who, you know, whose own personal finances were a complete mess, uh, you can see that there was uh, an inducement uh, to borrow at, at, uh, and spend and not to think of the huge amount of corruption and waste uh, that was taking place. So I don't think, I think that the lockdown, the debt finance lockdown was in the West a, a consequence of the absurd and unnaturally cheap level of money. But there's a consequence to that, is that this debt is still there. And in fact, the debt is now, the government, as I say, owes, owes the Bank of England uh, 850 billion pounds. And now interest rates are rising, suddenly the cost of servicing the government debt is starting to rise. So this era of government profligacy is coming very rapidly to an end. Uh, the uh, House of Lords uh, report last year found that a 1% rise in short-term rates increased the cost of government debt financing by the equivalent in, of 1% of GDP. So you can see that incredible sensitivity of the government finances to, uh, the, um, to, to rises in interest. And since, um, as you'll know, Sanchez, since the global financial crisis, uh, countries like Britain, the debt level, uh, the, the national debt relative to GDP has increased by roughly three times. So that our debt is over 100% of GDP. In the US, I think it's around 120% of GDP, roughly at the same level the US got to at the end of the Second World War. And uh, as President Trump put it in 2020, uh, no one cares about fiscal deficits. Well, of course, they don't care about fiscal deficits when there is no cost to running those deficits. But eventually, as we know, these chickens come home to roost. So one question before we ask for question, uh, before I open it to the audience. Uh, so what's your prognosis looking forward? You say, okay, interest rates go up. House of Cards comes down, and we go back to having low interest rates again. And so effectively, we announce, you, you would argue that we are stuck in this low interest rate, uh, well, zombie Japanese uh, sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, ecosystem. I, I don't actually necessarily think that's the outcome. As you, as you remember, I mentioned before, Japan had very high domestic savings and enormous foreign assets, whereas Places like the U.S. is the largest international debtor in the world. Britain has a woefully low savings rate. And in fact, one of the functions of interest, which I haven't mentioned to date, is an inducement to savings and, if, and also a compounding your wealth over time. So if you take interest rates down to, to very low levels, you will have, as we see in the West, a very low savings. So there was much talk of a global savings glut. But I think the global savings glut was a chimera, mainly related to Chinese uh, sort of uh, manipulation of its uh, currency. Um, but the reality has been very low rates of, of savings. So what happens? So what I think might happen is that the house of cards continues to collapse as the central banks raise interest rates to higher levels. And we see uh, in the US, for instance, over the last 25 years, interest rates, as you know, Sanjeev, have peaked at each cycle at ever lower levels. The last cycle they peaked at 225 
basis points. They're now roughly double that level. My analysis is correct. The system cannot bear such high rates of interest. In fact, we saw Bloomberg had a piece this week saying, I think, $225 billion of commercial real estate is already, debt is already distressed. British uh, reg financial regulator came out with the fact that uh, 850,000 houses in the UK uh, are already, uh, the households can't pay their mortgages. So I think we are uh, in on the, on the cusp of very severe problems. I think that then what's likely, and this is conjecture, is that, that inflation uh, comes down as the economy uh, begins to, um, as the economy and financial system are very weak. And then I think the central bankers try one more time to lower interest rates and to print money. And I think, but I think now we've reached a, a turning point in which the lowering of interest and the injection of money into the system uh, doesn't inflate asset prices as it did in the last decade, but merely inflates consumer price inflation. So if that uh, prognosis is correct, we're in for a period of uh, low growth, uh, economic and financial volatility, and of sort of, of stagflation, of, of high, um, high uh, potentially high inflation. So it's not but, a very... But at least if you're taking a year's perspective, I would say you're advising everybody here to buy long bonds and I then invite you back. I if wouldn't... we make money, we will celebrate. Otherwise, you'll have tomatoes and eggs thrown at you. <laughs> so no, I mean, not, I wouldn't, I'm not, a, I, I'm, I wouldn't buy the long, long nominal bonds. In, I don't know if India has inflation protected bonds. Probably not. Do you have inflation? Not protected? really. That's so, not a liquid market. So we, no. I mean, in, uh, in the US, UK and Europe, you have inflation protected bonds. They were trading at, high, at very negative levels. So, so for instance, a UK 50-year index linked bonds uh, were trading at minus 2% uh, at the end of 2021. 20, uh, 20, so you imagine that, you put your money down and you're guaranteed to lose 2% a year until redemption in 50 years time. Then when interest rates started to rise, these bonds, these what we call gilt-edged securities, fell 85% in value. So that is you know, worse than cockapoodles. Um, and it's worse than Bitcoin. Um, but now, actually, they're reasonably well valued. So I think that, you know, from an investment perspective, the, uh, in the US and, and UK, the index-linked bonds uh, protect you against inflation and now offer positive returns. I'm quite positive on what uh, my friend Felix Martin, another financial historian, calls the world's oldest bubble, namely gold. I think that we uh, have had a period in which uh, financial assets have been inflated, and now we move a shift from financial assets to real assets. And those real assets are, uh, are gold, commodities, dare I say it, oil, um, and the, it, the, it is the real assets that I think will do better for preserving wealth over the course of the next decade. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Laksh Datta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes. <laughs>